You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello and welcome to the Center for Rural Health Research podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Lloyd Cusick. Today, we'll sit down for the third and final episode in our three-part series of short interviews discussing the CRHR survey that asked rural patients from across British Columbia about their priorities for healthcare. If you hadn't heard the first couple of episodes in this series, I invite you to go check them out from wherever you found this podcast. There'll be the two episodes immediately preceding this one. In the first episode, I sat down with the primary investigator of the Rural Evidence Review Project and co-director of the Center for Rural Health Research, Dr. Jude Cornelson, to discuss the purpose and impact of the Rural Evidence Review Project. She'll also actually be making a brief cameo on this episode a little later on. In the second episode, we connected with the manager of the Rural Evidence Review Project, Christine Carthew, to hear about what it looks like to set up and carry out an outreach initiative as successful as this one to hear from rural communities. And today we're joined by the Center for Rural Health Research's very own legal research analyst, Kayla Miguez, who will be discussing what the team learned while analyzing the nearly 1,800 responses to the survey and one exciting new legal project the team has been working on as a result. So Kayla, I think I'd actually like to start off with a maybe the most obvious question. What did you learn as you were going through the survey responses? So as you guys have been discussing, we did have a lot of responses come into the survey. And the main issue that we saw that people um, were discussing through their responses was a lack of access to healthcare, either within their rural community or nearby. And that this often led to them needing to leave their community and travel in order to access uh, you know, a given healthcare service. There are a lot of consequences that come with you know, not having care nearby and, and needing to travel to get care. So one of the main consequences is that a lot of survey respondents spoke about how time-consuming and costly it is um, when they need to leave their community in order to get medical care. And these expenses don't only include the cost of gas or paying for the actual travel, but, you know, for some, there are also costs that are associated with needing to stay overnight in another community. So hotel costs and, and things like that, which these days can be for extended periods of time. Um, If somebody's going through a longer treatment, this can really add up. Some of these expenses also come from community members needing to take time off of work if they need to travel for care, um, depending on how far the healthcare service may be. And just collectively, this is, you know, a huge financial burden for people who, and a lot of people may just not have the means to travel and spend this kind of money. So you said there were a lot of responses to the survey, but who was responding? Um, What was really interesting is that the survey responses came from about 200 rural and remote communities from across the province. When we say from across the province, we truly do mean from across the entire province. We had people answering from communities as far ranging as Port Nelson, Castlegar, Port McNeil, up to 200 other communities from across the province. The average age of people who responded was 52, um, but this did range from some responses coming from people below 20 years old all the way to 89 years of age. And what was also really interesting is that there was this really wide range of how long people had lived in their rural or remote community. Um, So on average, people had lived there for 21 years, but again, this ranged from one month until 83 years. And then something that's just important to add is that we did have about 150 responses coming from healthcare providers. This included nurses, physicians, but we decided to start by only looking at the responses from community members who are not 
paid healthcare providers. And this is just because of the different perspectives that kind of will be coming from these two different groups. A lot of the uh, concerns you've mentioned are related to finances and the cost of accessing care and traveling. Were there any non-financial concerns that emerged from the survey responses? Yes. So there are a lot of responses that came in speaking to consequences that come from needing to travel these long distances to access care, but that were not financial. So just some examples were that people spoke about how dangerous it can be to need to travel for care through the winter months when weather and road conditions can make driving very risky. There are also concerns that were specific to those who are unable to drive themselves or who don't have access to a vehicle and how they often find themselves very dependent on having support around them from people who can take time to drive them outside of their community for a given appointment. What was very worrisome were responses from community members who said that, you know, not having access to care locally makes them more likely to forego either necessary medical appointments, tests, or just avoiding seeking care when they feel that they may actually need it. And lastly, but that was equally as important, is the situation of community members who are transported to another community in emergency. So patients often reported being um, left to find their own way back home to their home community after having been discharged from a hospital. And you can imagine how difficult it would be for someone who is evacuated from their community by you know, emergency air transportation and who is now left without their car in a community that may be a several hour drive away from, from their home. Hmm. Were there any type of healthcare services that communities seemed particularly concerned about in the findings? Yeah, so a big concern that did come through was concerns around not having maternity care available within their community or nearby. So for something that should be such a normal life event, you know, it ends up looking very different for people who live in these rural and remote communities who then need to leave their community as they prepare to uh, have a baby. And so what a lot of expecting mothers reported through the survey is that if they don't have these services available nearby, they often have to leave their home community several weeks ahead of their anticipated due date in order to then stay in a community that does have the type of maternity care services that they need. And kind of as we were discussing before, this comes with a whole range of consequences for them. So some survey responses had said how, you know, this means being away from your family or other sources of support for weeks at a time before giving birth. It also means, like we discussed before too, taking time off of work and potentially needing to pay for housing and food and living expenses in another community for, you know, up to several weeks. So for, just as an example, we had some responses that came from Fort Nelson where people reported needing to spend um, nearly $5,000 to stay in Fort St. John for three weeks ahead of their due date because there was a lack of the services that they needed in Fort Nelson. And, you know, these types of financial consequences that come with this are just not really affordable or realistic for a lot of people. And apart from financial consequences, a lot of expecting mothers spoke about just how stressful it is to need to travel that close to giving birth. So if you need to be leaving up to three or four weeks before giving birth, that can mean um, needing to travel through poor winter conditions or on dangerous roads while being pregnant. And so this is particularly worrisome for women who may go into labor early and are then told that they need to travel up to four hours away from their community in order to get the care that they need. Were there any findings uh, from the survey that you found to be particularly surprising? 
clearly, you know, what you described already are, are critically important findings. I think that maybe describe a lot of issues that were already, you know, fairly well established as being persistent and problematic. Uh, but I'm wondering if there anything that was a little bit more outside of what you expected. I guess what really stood out to me was just how many responses came in from people speaking about how concerned they were about the effect that all of this will have on their community. And what surprised me most about it was just how kind of wide ranging these were. Like it wasn't just people speaking about the concern on their own health or the health of their family members or these financial concerns, but also a lot of responses coming in about the effect that it would have on the, you know, the vitality of their community and how um, desirable their community maybe, you know, for new families coming in and kind of these effects that kind of just add on to each other where you, you don't have the health care you need, less people will be coming to the community, which then makes it less desirable and kind of how worried people were about the long-term consequences that it could have. So you uncovered a large diversity not surprisingly, given the diversity of the population you were asking, but a large diversity of different concerns and priorities stemming from, you know, directly from healthcare services in the community, also from kind of maybe second order concerns around the implications for the vitality and futures of communities based on access to care and things like that uh, and the barriers that they face. And so I'm sure our listeners are wondering, what are the next steps for addressing some of these needs? And I know that obviously the, the different tools and approaches for addressing uh, such diverse needs, of course, need to be diverse. But what are the types of approaches that are needed to address some of these identified issues? And actually here for our listeners, the director of the Center for Rural Health Research and the primary investigator of the Rural Evidence Review Project, Dr. Jude Cornelson, is going to make a brief cameo to give a little context about what the next steps might be in using what they've learned from this survey. So I think we heard from survey respondents some really, really embedded uh, solutions to some of the problems in the community. They, by and large, were very reasonable about ways to increase access to health services in their community and not suggesting a resource strain that would be inappropriate to the population level. So community ideas about having longer hours for their primary care clinic or different ways to recruit and retain healthcare professionals. What was really interesting to all of us, I think, in analyzing the results of the survey was the number of direct, practical, kind of pragmatic suggestions that people had about what the healthcare decision makers could do to increase access to health services and increase um, access to care away from their community as well. So I think that there's a lot of wisdom in the findings and the challenge for us and our job is to translate that wisdom into policy direction. So by writing policy papers, by writing um, a series of recommendations, and most importantly, by working with our healthcare decision maker colleagues to try and set a rurally responsive agenda for health service planning. A lot of this is already happening. A lot of work has been done at a provincial level around primary care homes or patient medical homes and primary care networks. And there has been a lot of innovation due to the dogged determination of, of many groups. Um, and this is just a way of triangulating, I think, what's already happening at a provincial level, which was really fantastic. But you know, another thing that came out of the review is 
uh, real clear questions around what citizen patient rights are, how they can um, ensure accountability at, the, at a healthcare system level, and how they can engage with the discussion going on. And, you know, it's been so wonderful to have Kayla on the team uh, because she's done some really innovative work around creating a framework for helping rural citizen patients to understand what their actual rights are within a legal framework. Right. And so, Kayla, what did that work look like? How did you approach developing a tool to help individuals and communities do that? And how did the idea arise that that would be a good approach to take? As we were, you know, reading through these survey results and, and analyzing them, as we were saying, there's a you know very strong message of a lack of appropriate access to healthcare within rural communities. And the issue with that is just that Canada has made health commitments towards its citizens. And, you know, on top of that, has expressed on several different fronts kind of this strong understanding of the importance of access to healthcare for, for Canadians. So this project that we're now embarking on is creating this toolkit that will primarily help educate rural and remote communities on Canada's health commitments. And that will also help to bring awareness to the fact that their level of access to healthcare and, and what they have to go through to access healthcare is not, is not reasonable. So the purpose of this toolkit is to translate these needs and priorities of rural communities and patients that we acquired through this survey into actionable change and policy within their communities. And just a quick note that we just want to add is that we're not trying to in any way be adversarial through this, you know, creating this toolkit, but we're really just trying to help improve the situation of access to healthcare for rural and remote communities by sharing information with them on what health commitments are in Canada, and then helping to strengthen their capacity or, or the capacity of using these commitments to promote social change. Jude and Kayla, thank you so much for sharing what you've been working on with me and our listeners today. We really appreciate it. And now for you, the listeners out there, this recording as well as past and future episodes can be found on the Center for Rural Health Research website at crhr.med.ubc.ca or just type crhr at ubc into Google and we'll pop right up. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify if you search for CRHR. As always, thanks for listening and take care. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 